You may have a ritual of going to the grocery store, maybe on a certain day, maybe at a certain time. Maybe you even have friends who might be your grocery buddies, those folks that you only see at the grocery store, but because of your routine and theirs, they've kind of co-mingled, and maybe you've even formed a relationship, and you might even look forward to going to the grocery store because you're able to see your grocery friends. And then there may be those other times that we go to the store. Maybe it's a last-minute pickup. Maybe we forgot something. Maybe it's that dreaded 3 a.m. cold or flu season that we need to get that extra batch of medicine. And maybe in those times we notice people we have never seen before. And maybe you start understanding why you've never seen them during your normal shopping hours. Maybe you start to get the feeling that they are not normal. Have we had that experience before? Making sure that we were not seen. Do we know what it's like to map out our day intentionally? planning our schedule, taking certain roads, going at a specific pace, everything we can do and every step we take dictated because we are afraid to interact with others because we have experienced what it is like to be rejected by others, judged by others, ridiculed by others, broken down by others. As we continue in the journey of the season of Lent, we continue to walk with Jesus on his way to the cross. And it takes us to places we may not ordinarily go. At times, we certainly would not want to show up and be associated with others that entire communities have rejected. Jesus came into Sychar, a Samaritan village that bordered the field Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was still there. Jesus, worn out by the trip, sat down at the well, and it was noon. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of your water? The Samaritan woman, taken aback, shocked, asked, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Now, we know from our study, from our cultural and historical traditions of that time, women typically drew water in groups in the morning. This was often a social occasion. Now, the fact that this woman is drawing water alone at noon, at midday, probably indicates that she was an outcast. Now, waking up in the morning, knowing that you are walking into opportunities for people to laugh at you, People to point at you, to snicker about you. Looking around every corner, constantly trying to be aware of every movement, every shadow, every sound. This isn't just animals looking out for large predators. These are human beings. Human beings who live in a constant state of anxiety every single day, second after second after second. And then we meet someone, someone who is in that very place we are, the place and the time specifically chosen so that we would not encounter anyone else, so that we would remain alone. 
And then that person starts talking to us in ways that we have not experienced in a very long time, talking to us like a person. Jesus answered, if you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh, living water. The woman said, sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep. So how are you going to get this living water? Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. But anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be a spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. And then the woman says, sir, give me this water. And she says, give me this water, not only so that I will never be thirsty again. Give me this water so I will never have to come back to this well again. Do we realize what she's saying? Give me this water. Give me yourself. Give me who you are so that I never have to come back to this place at this day, at this time, with these people who have rejected me. Give me this water so I will never be thirsty for love again. I am the water, Jesus says. You do not have to wait any longer or look any further. What you have been thirsting for, it is me. And then Jesus stops talking about himself and starts focusing more on the Samaritan woman and starts reminding her who she is. He says, it is you and the way you live. It is you and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people God is looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. For God is honest about who God is. God, Jesus says, is sheer being itself. Spirit. Now, it is one thing for me in who I am to stand here and talk about this. But what I think is more needed is for someone else in who they are. To talk about this. Thank you, Andy. So I'm going to get into the next section of this story as we talk about who the woman as the at the well is, which is a section that people misunderstand a lot. And it's one that I misunderstood a lot too growing up. So when we get to this next section of the scripture, we tend to bring our own modern cultural context, our own modern day eyes into this passage. Instead of like my very first New Testament professor always told me to do, reading scripture for exactly what it is, seeing the context as it is presented in its own accord. Starting in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go and get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You were right to say, I don't have a husband. 
Jesus answered, You've had five husbands, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. So a lot of times, pastors, interpreters will look at this exchange and project all sorts of negative things on this woman. We can look down on her because she had five husbands and the sixth man that Jesus mentions she is not married to. But again, that's putting our own context of marriage and relationships into this text. Because the reality is, in that day and age, women had absolutely no say, no authority over marriage. Just think about the birth narratives. When we hear the exchange between Mary and Joseph, we never see Mary explaining herself, asking for forgiveness, and begging Joseph to marry her because that is just not the way that marriage worked. It was all up to the man. A divorce of any woman would have been because the man decided to leave her. If it was due to the death of her husband, well, obviously, that was not her fault. And a lack of proposal by this mysterious sixth man, well, obviously, there is nothing that she could have done about it. So the scripture never tells us why this poor woman had gone through five husbands, why the sixth man was refusing to marry her. So the women's Bible commentary speculates that this may have been the tradition of Leverite marriage in that day and age. By Jewish law, you were bound, if you were unable to bear a son before your husband died, you were obligated to marry your husband's oldest or next oldest brother. And then if that brother died, you were obligated to marry the next brother and so on and so on and so forth. So let's think about it. It's pretty logical. If you had went through five brothers and you had gotten to the sixth brother, the sixth brother might assume that you are cursed and want nothing to do with marriage. It's very logical. Now, whether or not that was the cause, what we can conclude is it's likely that this woman was ostracized from society for something that was not her fault at all. Something that she just absolutely could not control, and yet, something the whole community judged her for. So this was not condemnation. In fact, we see in this exchange, Jesus never calls any of this sin. He just simply states it as fact. It's all part of a theological discussion. It gives the woman eyes to see who Jesus is. And so she, in fact, gets closer to the right answer in this exchange in verse 19 by calling him a prophet. And so then later in the scriptures, we get to that pivotal moment in this theological exchange where Jesus reveals he is, in fact, the Messiah. She, he is the one that she has heard about, the one that they all are waiting for. And you know what's amazing about this whole exchange about this Samaritan unnamed woman and yet such a powerful figure? 
Just one chapter four, or before, in John chapter three, there's a character introduced called Nicodemus. He is a Jewish leader. He's supposed to be the religious leader, the guy who gets it all. And he has an exchange with Jesus as well. And yet, he doesn't understand any of Jesus' teaching. He doesn't see it. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't go out to proclaim it. And yet, unlike Nicodemus, this unnamed Samaritan woman, she instantly sees and believes. She sees and she believes and she goes on to proclaim the gospel to all of those around her. And so they, the outsiders, the dreaded Samaritans, they believe too. She, the outcast woman, becomes one of the very early preachers in the gospel of John. Starting in verse 28. The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified. He told me everything I've ever done. And thus in this passage, we see Jesus drawing that circle wider. We see Jesus challenging any ideas of who's in and who's out in the kingdom of God. We see Jesus very vividly, very clearly, very intentionally reminding us that God's love for the world is God's love for the whole world. We are reminded of God's love for us Exactly as we are, different as we might be, despite anything society might try to label us as. God's love is for the whole world, maybe even especially those folks on the margins. And here's the kicker, friends. Here's the most, I feel like, important and hard teaching of our Christian faith, that all of this is maybe even especially for those people that we might call others, the people that we might even call our enemies. But then, after all of this beautiful exchange, reality strikes, and the disciples come back to the scene. So as the story continues, the disciples came back, and they were shocked. They could not believe Jesus was talking with this kind of woman. But no one said what they were thinking, but their faces showed it. How familiar does that sound? That we come to a place that we think is holy, and we see maybe this unholy thing taking place, and we have all these things that we want to say, but we know that it's Not polite, because it's church. But our faces, our faces say everything. Do we want to be the kind of church that looks shocked when we see God incarnate interacting with someone that society has judged as rejected? That looks behind us when a kid cries 
or a person coughs or a phone rings or someone is doing anything other than just sitting perfectly still and facing forward. If we say we worship Jesus Christ, does that not also include the Jesus Christ who goes to places despised by his people at the hottest time of the day to sit with someone everyone else has written off and bullied? If we are going to be a safe place to explore our faith, if we are going to be a sanctuary, do we have this living water within us? and the willingness to share it with others. You know, Jesus is always telling people not to tell others about him. In what he says and how he says it and when he arrives, when he performs miracles, his common answer is do not tell anyone. Except that doesn't happen this time. It doesn't happen with this Samaritan woman who has understood everything Jesus has said. In fact, he stays and he interacts with those people that this woman evangelizes to, preaches to. The story says many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Because someone who was supposed to keep quiet... Someone who was supposed to stay away, someone who was supposed to stay invisible, did not. On that day, the rules were bent and broken. Because the woman at the well had been empowered, encouraged, transformed by the incarnation of God. And that is Easter. Now, we're not quite there yet. We still have a little ways to go. We still have a few more steps to take with Jesus on the way to the cross. And, of course, that last stretch that will be the hardest. Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. Services we will have during Holy Week which recall and reenact those last steps Jesus took on the way to the cross. Steps which remind us we did not take those steps with him. But Jesus keeps going. Jesus keeps going and he keeps looking out for others who have been ignored, bullied, rejected, written off. What will be our response when we see the unseen? Will we allow the living water within us to make that choice to look? I think we need just one more stanza in that hymn to remind us that when our cup is filled, when our hunger is satiated, that is when we go out to share with others. And at times we may feel as though if we share this water, there won't be enough left for us. But that's part of what Jesus means when he says, I am the living water, water in which you will never thirst again. Because when we share, our cup never empties. It remains full. It remains full because we are doing what the water is intended to do and to be is to share the good news, to share the love of Jesus Christ, especially to those who have been thirsty in body and soul for so long. So go and share that living water because it never runs out. It never runs out because God is always with us. And may that give us peace. Amen.